Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Authority of the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, as we hear a message titled, Behold Your King. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Reading Matthew 8, 1 to 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. See, I'm entitling today's message, Behold Your King, and, I, and I've borrowed that title. I didn't come up with it. Title refers to the Messiah. Title is found in two different places in the Bible. The first comes from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and there you have a prophecy of the coming of Israel's king, and it's, it's found in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The second reference to the phrase, behold your king, is found in John 19. There Pilate has had Jesus beaten and he's placed a crown of thorns on his head and then in mockery put a purple robe on him. Jesus is presented as whipped and bloodied and completely humiliated. And then in ridicule, he's presented to the Jewish leaders. And Pilate wants to show them how ridiculous it was for them to fear such a pretender as this. Look, he's nothing. From John 19, 14 to 15. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, in those two scriptures, one sees the conundrum that is Jesus. He is the longed-for king of Israel and, at the same time, the one brought to utter ruin by his enemies. You've heard it many times. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He he rules the nations. With his coming, God's kingdom has entered the world. And, And yeah, that's all true. But how can that be true? I mean, right now, wars are creating an unprecedented crisis of refugees all over the world. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then King Jesus, why don't you rule over the kings in those countries? Demonstrate your authority in Syria and Myanmar and other war-torn lands. See, I can see why Pilate dragged Jesus out bloodied and saying to the Jews, he's really a nobody. Behold your king. It's a phrase of hope in Zechariah but it's a phrase of derision in John. Now, of course, it's not just the global issues that need answers. I hear the questions all the time. I spoke to someone recently whose spouse had left him for someone else, and and that person said, it feels demonic. Why doesn't Jesus just cast out the demons? He did before. Why doesn't he do it now? There's a question. How do you answer that? I spoke to someone else. My granddaughter is in grade one. The teacher has been teaching these impressionable kids that the Dalai Lama is the Prince of Peace. And we've been trying to intervene. 
We can't teach Christian values in school, so why does she teach Buddhist values? If Jesus is king of kings and with him his kingdom has come, why doesn't he safeguard his truth in the public school system? When kids are young and impressionable, if he's king, then rule there where children are being instructed. You see, the questions go on and on. Why doesn't he heal me or or my loved ones? Why do so many reject the gospel and reject him with no consequences? Why are abortions and the killing of innocent unborn children referred to as a choice? Why does sexual morality get trampled down in the streets? Why do so many use his name to curse? We could go on and on. How is this the king? I mean, don't you see? I'm addressing the questions that, that so many have, and perhaps you have them as well. But there are other questions. Why is evil still at work in me? Why do I have trouble forgiving my enemies? Why do I hurt others? Why do I still disobey God? I'm sure everyone has asked questions like these. Jesus, why don't you do something? Why do you let this happen? And now I have one more question on top of all of those. Do you know the answer to those questions? Or are they simply left floating around in your head, eating away at your faith? Because if you don't know some of the answers, how can you have faith at all? See, the book of Matthew has often been called the story of the great king. The book of Matthew was written by Matthew. He's a Jewish tax collector who became a follower of Jesus and was included among the 12 disciples. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, Matthew died in Ethiopia. He was beheaded there while attempting to bring the gospel there. And that only heightens our questions. But long before the beheading of Matthew and after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, Matthew had the time to write this book. He wrote it in the late 50s or early 60s, so about 30 years after Jesus. He was an eyewitness to what he wrote, and this book is intensely personal. He initially wrote it to the church in Antioch in Syria, a church that included Jews and Gentiles. He wrote the book with a very specific point of view. He wanted to present Jesus as the great king, the great Messiah, the hope of Israel and the hope of the world. This is the book of the king. And in the chapters we'll be studying, Jesus surely comes across that way. He heals, he drives out demons, calms the storm, chooses his 12 disciples, and furthers his message. And in the process, his followers are given power to heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse lepers and cast out demons. They're given the power to do what he did. It's all pretty heady stuff. It, It surely demonstrates that Jesus is the great king. I think as we study these passages, Matthew will make an impressive case for that. The entire book wants us to see that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. God has begun to rule. Evil is being defeated. Salvation is proclaimed. But I want you to notice something that that might help understand both this book and the section we've chosen to study. The first account in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, the account of the healing of the leper, is also retold in Mark 1, 40 to 45, and in Luke 5, 12 to 16. There, it's quite clear that this event happens before the Sermon on the Mount, but here in Matthew, it's reported after the Sermon on the Mount, and that's interesting. Furthermore, from looking at Mark and Luke, it's also apparent that the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, which also happens in chapter 8, 
also happened before the Sermon on the Mount, as well as a large portion of chapter 9 and chapter 12 all happened before the Sermon on the Mount. Clearly, the order of events in this book is not necessarily chronological. So let's learn something about this book. While Matthew presents genuine events in the life of Jesus, he seems to arrange a great deal of them, not in chronological order, but in topical order. And that's interesting. Why would he do that? And isn't that confusing? Well, think of the book of Matthew as having an introduction and a conclusion. The introduction is Christmas, chapters 1 to 2, and the conclusion is Easter, chapters 26 to 28. But between those two events, there are five sections. You know, some say that that Matthew deliberately wrote the book with these five sections to directly correspond to the five books of Moses. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You know, some say Matthew did this to show Jesus fulfilled what Moses wrote about, but he also shows that Jesus is greater than Moses. And, And that sounds interesting, but I kind of doubt that. Matthew is showing Jesus not as the great lawgiver, but as the great king. Behold, your king stands at the center of this book. See, rather, the five sections of the book of Matthew are arranged topically to show us that that while Jesus really is the great king, at the same time, he is a very different king than we expected. If you think you understand the kingdom, says Matthew, you need to think again. You need to see just what kind of kingdom Jesus began, and only then will you understand the answer to some of those questions that we have. Like, how come he doesn't drive out all the demons and stop all wars and and all abortions and, and so forth? Matthew is going to teach us why by showing us from the life of Jesus. Each section in this book follows a repeated pattern. First, Matthew shows us what Jesus did, and then Matthew follows some historical things that Jesus did by letting us hear one of Jesus' sermons. And why that? Well, in the sermon, we're going to hear the explanation to what actually happened in Jesus' life. We will see what the things Jesus did actually mean. And we will learn to apply those things to the hopes and the fears and the disappointments and the sufferings that we feel today. And we will find in these pages all the reason in the world to believe. The church was created to be God's instrument to declare the gospel to a fallen world. In Dr. Neufeld's series, Lessons for the Church, discover more about the purposes of the church and how God has equipped His church for service. Lessons for the Church is our free CD resource this month to encourage and equip God's people. Making Bible teaching you can trust available is central to our mission, and it makes a difference. Rob wrote, Back to the Bible Canada has become even more of a blessing since I relocated. I have grown so much, and the ministry has been a lifeline during this time of transition. Thanks so much for your encouragement. As always, so grateful for your prayers and financial support that sustain this ministry. For more information or to request your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I want to outline the book of Matthew into the five sections that make up this book. 
See, after the introduction, section one covers Matthew three to seven. Here Jesus begins his ministry as the great king, and then he preaches a sermon, Sermon on the Mount, where he tells his would-be followers who it is that will inherit the kingdom he is establishing. He's going to show who gets into the kingdom, how they live, and then he's going to make an invitation. Would you like to enter the kingdom? Section two covers chapters eight to 10. That's the section we're studying in this series. Here, Jesus demonstrates his authority as king. He heals the sick and he drives out demons and directs the course of nature. And then follows with his second sermon. It's a private one he delivered to his disciples, giving them their mission and proclaiming the kingdom. He sends them out to heal and drive out demons everywhere. Section three covers chapters 11 to 13, and here Jesus continues to demonstrate his authority as king, but now opposition to his kingdom is starting to grow. Jesus then gives a most unique sermon where he tells seven parables that explains how it is that his kingdom will grow, and at the same time, simultaneously, great opposition is going to grow as well. The two will grow up side by side. Section four covers chapters 14 to 18. Opposition now reaches new record levels, and Jesus gives a sermon at the end in which he demands that his followers are going to remain faithful and gracious in the middle of it. And section five covers chapters 19 through 25. Opposition now comes to a head in Judea and in Jerusalem, which is going to lead to the cross. But before the cross and the conclusion of the book, Jesus gives his last sermon in this book, covering two chapters, a sermon about his second coming and the restoration of all things. That sermon has been called the Olivet Discourse. But someone might say, so if the basic structure of the book is topical, that is, it's arranged around some basic themes rather than strict chronology, how can I be assured that everything I read is accurate? Well, that's precisely Matthew's point. He wants us to know that we need not only to be aware of what Jesus did, but we need to know the meaning of what happened. That's why the topical arrangement, so many of us, even today, still don't know how to understand the Jesus event. Why doesn't God always heal? Why am I suffering? Why evil? Things like that. Here's what Matthew wants us to know. Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the great king. He has inaugurated his kingdom. He really is bringing all evil and suffering and death to an end. So the kingdom has come, and yet evil remains. Or to put it another way, the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it still awaits the hour when it is consummated. The kingdom has arrived, and yet the present hour, it has not done away with evil, leaving that final work to a later time. But why? Well, that's the mystery that Matthew addresses. He shows us a world of intrigue and terror, yet a world invaded by the king and the Lord. You know, someone's going to say, well, what good is it to know that? Does this mean I just have to hang on and wait till Jesus comes? Well, yeah, you've got to wait, but there is more. Well, let's get back to Matthew chapter 8, 1 to 4. Let's start with verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Now, verse 1 signals that Jesus has moved from his first year of ministry, which was the year of obscurity, to his second year of ministry, which is the year of his popularity. Now, notice the next two words in verse 2, and behold, and behold, something is about to happen. See, at first glance, it would seem like the first two words of verse 2 
look like this is what happened next, right after the Sermon on the Mount. But, but the words, and behold, are merely used by Matthew to signal that he's moved from the first section of his book, which, which you remember is the invitation of the kingdom, to the second one, which is the authority of the kingdom. He's going to show us how powerful the kingdom actually is. So verse 2, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus is encountered by a leper, and a great many scholars have pointed out that Hansen's disease, which we call leprosy today, may not have been the same disease in the Bible. Leprosy may have been the term used in the Bible to simply describe a wide variety of different skin diseases, Hansen's disease being only the most severe among them. That no doubt is true. But according to Luke 5, verse 12, this man who approached Jesus was, in in Luke's words, full of leprosy. And that would give every indication that the disease was in its advanced stages, and that would also mean that it was incurable. If it was Hansen's disease, which seems likely, he had a cruel disease indeed. It begins with pain in certain parts of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in these spots loses its color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. Then the thickened spots become sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. Then the skin around the eyes and the ears begin to bunch up with deep furrows, making the face resemble that of a lion. Secondary infections often set in, resulting in tissue loss, including fingers and toes. That person becomes hideous. According to Leviticus, lepers were not to be touched. They, by law, had to live by themselves and had become social outcasts. They had no social structure, and they became thoroughly dehumanized. So notice the brazenness of this man. He is forbidden by law to approach anyone, yet he approaches Jesus. Is he desperate? Well, yes, he must be. Now notice what happens next. First, he kneels. Second, he calls Jesus Lord. And third, he makes a statement of faith. As horrible as his disease is, as incurable, as as isolating, as hopeless, for all he can look forward to is a painful and lonely death, as life-altering as this thing is, because he would have been treated with less respect than an animal, he actually believes that Jesus can cure him. He thinks that man is the difference between the kingdom of darkness and life. He thinks the kingdom of God has begun to invade this dark, hopeless, and suffering world. If you would be willing, all you need is to say the word. Now, it seems clear to me that that Jesus simply needed to say the word. See, in Matthew's next story, and that is the healing of the centurion's servant, he simply speaks the word, but not here. Here he goes to him and does something this man has not experienced in years. He reaches out and touches him. Real human touch, warm skin, reaching out in compassion and accepting. It made him feel human for the first time in years. According to Leviticus 13 and 14, such an act would immediately render Jesus unclean. But but here's a miracle. Not only is Jesus not unclean after that touch, the man is made clean. With a hand reaching out and touching his shoulder, his arm, his his face, and gently holding a man who has not thought such a feeling was possible, Jesus simply says, I am willing. And with that, the deep furrows in his face simply roll back. Leprosy, the worst ailment in the ancient world, the, the fate that was worse than death, is defeated by the power of the king. Listen again to verse 4. 
And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded for a proof to them. Matthew mentions no more. Mark tells us this man simply didn't obey. Instead, told everyone, making it extremely difficult for Jesus to get around. But Matthew has no interest in that part of the story. What Matthew wants to tell us is that Jesus had something in mind. This man was to go to the priest in Jerusalem for proof. The Greek word is marturion, witness, testimony. Show the religious leaders that the days of the rule of the kingdom of darkness are numbered. That way, they're going to have to decide which side they're on. Now, of course, all that means that something unimaginable has happened. The great end time event, that is the coming of the kingdom, when evil and the curse are defeated and when God reigns over all, has in some fashion broken into this world. Now, let me say it more clearly. The kingdom of God has broken into the world of one man who was a leper and said to him, the kingdom of God is greater than leprosy. And long before you answer the question of how God can allow wars and illness and injustice and nature to go awry, Matthew wants you to look at one leper and simply digest that one thought. For that one man, leprosy no longer meant a thing. He had encountered the kingdom of God. And if that kind of thing can happen, then something unique and amazing has happened in this tired, old, sin-cursed, suffering-laden world. To one man, the kingdom of God had come with an authority that simply overrode all the evil of this world. And if that's happened, I mean, what can that mean? Does it not provide hope that evil and sickness and suffering and death, these things, do not have the final word? The king has the final word. John, this is a great message, a great message of hope. It gives us, a, I think, a different slant on, on this whole sense of these miracles. But some might be asking right now, so where are these miracles today? Yeah, and, and I want to say at the outset that if you who are listening to me are sick uh, in some fashion. I mean, do what James tells you to do in James 5. Call the elders of your church and have them anoint you with oil and pray over you in the name of Jesus. And it's an amazing thing. I, you know, I, I, I'm going to say that not everyone I've ever seen anointed was healed, but I've never seen someone anointed with oil and prayed for in which God has not done something astounding in that person's life. So I would say do that one thing. And also recognize this, that if the kingdom has begun already in this world, then recognize that your situation does not end in tragedy. I mean, the best news is still ahead. I mean, the days are coming when the kingdom is fully revealed, when every sickness will be ultimately dealt with. Have hope. Don't be in despair. Great word of hope. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Now's the time to place the gathering in your calendar. Join us online via Facebook Live this coming Sunday, September 19th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 Central or 8 Eastern for a celebration of God's faithfulness. Be blessed by the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld as we investigate Psalm 138. Enjoy host Phil Calloway of Laugh Again and be inspired and blessed by special musical guest Laura Hastings as we worship, fellowship, 
and celebrate God's Word together. For more information about the gathering and to ensure you're in the right spot at the right time, visit backtothebible.ca slash gathering or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Join friends and the family of God at the gathering from right across the country for an hour of celebrating God's faithfulness together this Sunday, September 19th. Look forward to seeing you there.